0: Hello and welcome to Pip Permaculture Podcast number 5 on the topic of bush schools. On this podcast, Pip editor Robin Rosenfeld chats with bush school educator and advocate Nikki Bucken about the growing movement towards natural learning. Nikki is the author of Children in Wild Nature and her writing on bush schools is also featured in the latest issue of Pip. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. Today we're talking to Nikki Buchan, an educational consultant with a particular passion for working with children and with nature. Hi, Nikki, and welcome to the PIP Permaculture Podcast, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: It's my absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you, Robin. Great. So firstly, when we talk about natural learning, what, what do you mean by natural learning?
1: Um. We've named the company Natural Learning because we we've, um, would like to focus on the natural way that humans learn um, as well as focusing on learning in nature or with nature. So it has a, a double meaning. So natural learning to me is, um, you know, the way, the way people learn and, and not everybody learns well in an indoor environment mm. or in a or in a very
0: structured environment. So, with learning in nature and that style of learning, how how do you do that? What what are your as an educational consultant, what are your recommendations for the best ways for kids to be learning?
1: Well, I I think um, well, I believe a lot of children, as I said, struggle in a in a structured classroom situation, and it would be lovely to offer every child the optimal um, learning environment. For their, you know, for their well-being, to me, um, a lot of children that don't cope in classrooms cope extremely well outdoors in a, a much more open, freer space. Um, I, for example, find that, uh, you know, we, we don't have ADHD or you know, attention deficit. There's uh, children with autism, um, you know, cho- children with all kinds of um, maybe behavioural challenges within a classroom. That is evident uh, when you take children outside and you give them um, an amount in a certain degree of freedom. So I'm a great believer in um, the adults actually having to reflect back to their own childhoods and remembering, you know, the days of being kicked out in the morning and then Mm -hmm. come back when the streetlights come on, which is the sort of era I grew up in. And, and the freedom we had, and, and the mixed age groups, and how you learned from each other, and you learned life's lessons. So this, to me, is um, real world learning. It's um, yeah, it's it's very much about the real world learning. So if we put a child into an environment that they that they feel comfortable in, uh, where they have high levels of well being, that child's going to learn far more than it would in an environment where. The child is stressed.
0: Mm. Yeah, because so often it's all about sit up straight, sit at your desk, write this down or do this task. And for for so many kids, that just doesn't work, does it? They're active, they need to be outside, they need to get rid of that energy.
1: and especially the younger the child, um, because all the research says that um, to learn, a child needs to move. Mm. And also a child needs more muscles to sit still than than the child needs to move. And very often... Our expectation is that the children can sit still when actually that's really hard if you haven't developed the core body strength um, and the muscle control which you develop through things like monkey bars climbing trees this motor stuff comes first, and then when the children are you know when the children have developed those muscles and joints, then to expect them to sit still is for short periods of time is is more reasonable or has a higher
0: chance of success. So what sort of age are you talking about?
1: Well, there's a there's a, a strong movement at the moment saying that ch- children up to the age of seven or eight should be in a play-based environment, mm. whether that's in a classroom or, you know, in a formal school classroom or in a bush school or a, a kindergarten or, you know, um, any space they're in, but it should be a play-based environment, but a truly play-based environment, because I, I think um, a lot of people with the best of intentions don't realise that play is play is um, it's about freedom, mm. it's about choice. So what is a
0: play-based environment? How would you describe one?
1: Well, to me, a play-based environment is where a child has space and has freedom and has time, and it has, and the child has um, resources you know, or equipment or whatever you want to call it, that is open-ended.
0: Mm, like what sort of but, thing?
1: Well, if it's in a natural environment, nature provides it naturally. So you'll have your sticks and stones and uh, leaves and, you know, mini beasts and water. Um, in a more structured environment, you, you know, if you're not blessed enough to have the natural, you know, a, a beautiful natural wild space around you, is to have spaces where you bring in, maybe sticks and stones and cable reels and uh, planks of wood and logs, just Mm. open-ended material that doesn't have a a particular purpose, because that's another big concern, is that our children are growing up um, at a stage or in in an environment where there's always a right and a wrong way of using equipment, Mm. and toys. a lot of toys are made with, um, you know, there's only one way of using the toy, but Children like to explore and they're scientists, you know, children are born scientists, so they want to explore and test and if you give them a product that ha- or a resource or a toy that has one function, mm. once they've tested that function, then they look at, you know, they want to see what else can I do with it and that's when very often they throw it around or they stand up. <laughs> the uh, they try to find out what else can I do with this yeah. thing. Whereas if you get open-ended materials, you know, the possibilities are endless yeah.
0: So do you think this is something that any school can incorporate into the curriculum?
1: Yes, I believe any school can incorporate. I was once asked whether I felt um, I could follow the whole curriculum outdoors, and yes, I feel I can. Mm. Um, I don't think it's necessary to do, to do everything outside. I like a bit of a balance. Um, mm. So with allowing the children to play and, you know, the adults stepping back and observing and analysing and reflecting on what they're seeing and then the adult making decisions on, you know, what do we need to extend or what could we extend on in the classroom. Mm. So there, there, it, there are primary schools in Australia. I'm thinking of one in particular in South Australia. Like that it It's, a, um, it's a, a, a public school, and they've become a bush school. And the learning that's happening there is phenomenal, and it's, it's a lot of it outdoors, a lot of it is very much child-led. But obviously the adult school plays a very important role.
0: Mm. So it's a bush school. What, can you describe what a bush school is?
1: Um, a lot, they're, they're, the terminology is used very loosely. Um, this particular bush school is one where the children spend the majority of the time outside and they explore concepts through projects. So they, um, to me, a bush school is an, an environment where you take children outside and they learn with nature Mm. so it might be one morning a week and that's the model that a lot of schools are are following now which is great because it's a very good start yeah so you couldn't spend one morning a week you know in in nature or in the outdoor environment um
0: exploring and so Um, do they have set things or they just set off go and explore and they can do whatever they like
1: um, depending on the school and on the um, the teacher or the educator, mm. my, my ideal model is for children to have the freedom to, you know, reflecting on our childhoods, the freedom to play and to explore and for the adults to observe and then look at where the interest is. So if, for example, the children are exploring and then they find um, a bug mm. or an earthworm and then, you know, there's a lot of interest in the earthworm is to you know to get the children to take photographs, have conversations around it, but that can then transfer back into the classroom mm. so in the class, they can then look at um you know in more detail at the life cycle of the earthworm they could look at maybe creating a wormery you know and what the benefit is for the for the environment and uh, you know for yeah for the environment and sustainability in having a worm farm so that food gets recycled mm. that's linking the environments is linking what's happening outside in play to maybe uh, um, a bit of teaching and then uh, um, linking it to how we can you know how we can protect the environment through that
0: Mm. oh that sounds fantastic now I know a lot of schools feel a lot of pressure nowadays to meet curriculum outcomes and learning and numeracy and literacy and they feel like they can't do any. They can't fit in anything else because they've got to tick all these boxes. And how could these teachers incorporate that into what they're doing to create a better outcome for the kids?
1: Um, I think maybe we should look at the the Finnish model. And uh, Finland is often held up as an example of, you know, it's they've got very high literacy and numeracy rates. They score very highly on well-being and happiness. Mm. Um, and I think maybe we should look at that. And I know that um, they are now uh, looking more at a project approach where they explore a project in depth instead of having subjects in isolated categories so that, you know, the child goes to school and then they've got a math lesson. Mm. So they have to reset their brain. They're focusing on maths and they've just got their brain into maths and then the bell rings and they have to now go to another lesson and it might be biology. Yeah. I have to reset their brain, and, and humans don't think like that. We, yeah. we, we learn in an integrated way. You know, We, we integrate all those subjects and learn in that way, and that's what Finland is looking at is creating more where they explore a particular um, interest or project. For example, if you were looking at the earthworms, mm. you can link maths into that. You can link geography mm. into that. So, looking all at that kind of approach, and then retrospectively looking at what areas of the curriculum have we already covered. and that's very much how the early a lot of early year centers work that work on the project approach and the Regio Emilio approach mm. to explore a project in depth and then to see well, actually with that um, exploration we've we've actually covered all these areas of the curriculum already mm, yeah and, and just looking to the gaps we teach to them. so you can do um, I know, for example, um, the bush school in South Australia, they were looking at fungi because the, obviously it was fungi season, so there were a lot of different mushrooms and mm. fungi in the forest or in the bushland. Um, the whole school investigated fungi in different ways, and they were mapping the fungi. They mm. were So they were able to link the curriculum through that mm. hands-on, um, meaningful investigation for those children. And, and what's interesting is that um, Upper Sturt Primary and some other um, schools in WA who are in, you know, they're spending a lot of time in bush and outdoors with children is that their NAPLAN scores have improved.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Because that's where a lot of the pressure comes from, doesn't it, nowadays? Is you've got to get NAPLAN scores and they sit and do these tests where really they need to be outside. Yeah,
1: and also I think what what a lot of people don't realize is that it's not compulsory. The NAPLAN um, tests are not compulsory. So parents can opt out mm. uh, doing them. I think it, it might give you a really good um, uh, understanding of where your children are. But my concern is that um, if people start teaching to the NAPLAN, so they only focus on maths and literacy and they forget about the sciences and mm. the arts, mm. you know, anything else that creates a rounded, happy
0: child, mm. But it can be difficult. I mean, if you opt your child to not be in it, if the whole school's focused on that style yes. of teaching, it can be quite difficult to make a change because if the rest of the kids are all focusing on that, it's not going to make much difference if you're doing it or not, really.
1: No, and, and the, that's my concern. There are a lot, there are a lot of um, really good schools where, you know, the NAP plan is just part of what they do and there's not a particular focus on you know, only in maths and literacy, but I've also heard of schools where there's a really strong focus on just teaching maths and just teaching literacy so that they would get um, really good results for the, in the NAPLAN. Mm. That's not the intention of the NAPLAN tests. It's, the intention isn't to stop um, children learning about you or know, exploring the wonderful world around them and only focusing on mm. the maths and literature so they can't pass that test.
0: I guess and it's about having the principal behind it and the staff behind it, and they wanting to do that.
1: Being able to think outside the box.
0: Yeah, because it might take it might possibly take a little bit more work from their point of view to create those setups, maybe rather than.
1: Uh, I think it it, um, it needs a mind a change of mindset. Yeah. Trust, you know, you know. That's what the the Reggio Emilia approach is about, is to say that children can lead yeah. their, their own learning through their interests. So if there's an interest, children, children can run with that interest, and, and yeah. the learning happens. And it's it's not um, fear. It's not learning by fear, where you r- learn yeah. by and then you forget about it. You just learn it for your exams or your tests, and then you forget yeah. about it.
0: You learn it because you want to, and it's related to the re- real life, and...
1: Yeah. And, it's, and it and it makes sense. So all the STEM stuff that. People are focusing on you know the science, technology, engineering, and maths. Mm. We do a whole lot of work on STEM in nature. Just you know, what, is, what does science look like in, in nature and technology? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and with that, with the technology, which always surprises the teachers and the parents is that the technology is looking at tools. So we mm. look at you know, computers are modern technology, but what about you know, a spade and a, and a mm. you know, looking yeah. at other. Technology as well. So, you know, say so stick, if you're using a stick to lever something up, then the stick is a technology. Yeah. So.
0: yeah. Mm. so, what about for parents? So, say, you know, that school may not be offering these sorts of experiences. What can parents do with their kids to make sure they're getting opportunities for that nature connection?
1: I, I think um, um, what would be You know, uh, to counteract, if if a school has got a really strong academic focus or a strong focus on the indoors, to counteract that, parents can take children outdoors in the afternoons and weekends and focus on having nature time. I watched um, a group of children having sailing, going sailing, and they were youngsters, sort of seven, eight, nine-year-olds, and they little. And I was just sitting there looking at them, thinking, it's so lovely to see the children outside. um, You know. Taking uh, taking risks in a little boat um, instead of sitting on an iPad somewhere or on a computer somewhere, Mm. or or a structured lesson, you know. And and a lot of I think a lot of um, parents with really good intentions are facilitating a lot of um, what I would call structured opportunities, so football or gymnastics Mm. or that, which also has a place. But children also need time where they can just. Be mm. and they can you know, and to be able to think for themselves and to um, be creative sometimes they they don't need um a structured program it's more about you know, let's let's climb the mountain, but do it in the child's time, so we just go slowly and if they find something that interests them and they want to jump from rock to rock or they you know they find a puddle and they want to explore that mm. it's to slow down to, to basically, go back to nature time. I think it's uh, we've lost that that ability to, you know, as an adult and myself, I find life is so hectic and you sort of you're a bit on a hamster wheel and mm. you keep running and running, yeah, right? and then you crack at the end. And I think our children are on this constant hamster wheel and maybe don't realize it. Mm. Whereas, you know, when you say, Well, look, let's take the afternoon off and we'll just sit by the lake, yeah. Throw rocks in the lake, and or build bolts parcels, or you know whatever, just to say let's get out of the, let's go outdoors. And I think a lot of stress um, that may be caused by a structured environment can be negated by giving children that freedom in nature. Mm. So I would strongly recommend that parents um, take the time for themselves, for their own well-being, as well as for the for their child, to say let's slow down and let's you know, get back to nature.
0: Yeah, because I think there is a day, like kids have school and then they have piano lessons and gymnastics and on the weekend they've got football or soccer or netball or whatever they play and, yeah, Yeah. they're running out of (laughs) little gaps in their day to do nothing and also I think losing that opportunity to just not have anything to do and then to know how to just be imaginative and come up with their own games. I think the more, and also screens as well. I mean, I think screens are just an epidemic that's taking over kids' childhoods these days. I think it's a real worry. What part do you, do you see screens like iPhones and iPads and computers and things playing and all this?
1: I think um, you know we are in a in a modern world, and and I I mean I obviously um, I have computers and I have screens and I have all of that. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, the research says that children under two should not have any screen time. So that includes TV, which in in, re- in real life might not be achievable. Mm. It's to minimise it, and and I think it's to balance it. So if a child has spent an hour on a computer, they should spend two hours outside. Mm. Yeah, you know, you know, away from the screens. I think we we can't take the screens away, much as we
0: would you know, yeah. so maybe <laughs> throw we'll, them all in the bin.
1: <laughs> A lot of people say that they cons- the parents feel that if they don't introduce the uh, you know the IT to their children at an early age, they're going to get left behind. But to be honest, the the computers that our children are going to face as working adults haven't even been invented yet. Mm. You know, the Technology hasn't even been invented yet. And if you look at how quickly children learn. Yeah. The, the internet skills and the um, IT skills so much faster than an adult that they don't need to practice, whereas mm. I think adults think children need to practice on the computers and I don't
0: No. <laughs> Any practice. small child can pick up an iPad and work it better than an adult usually in a couple of minutes. Well,
1: I'm fascinated at how the babies can flick pages. You know, even yeah. if like a twelve old I was watching a twelve month old flick the pages. Yeah. But then I've also seen a baby trying to flick the pages in a magazine. Because yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> they're used to actually working, you know, having a paper copy, so they tried to flick it. Mm. You would, you would um, move a screen. Mm. So I, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I don't think we need to take um, screens totally away from children, but I think we need to limit and we need to balance. Mm.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think a lot of parents find it a constant struggle to try and minimize the use of screens and actually get kids to put them down and get outside and
1: yeah but but so often it's the children go to school and then they have some structured activity and then parents yeah. are at work and they they're stressed and they come home and they trying to do their work or cook and then they the children fight because they want to be on the computers and the parents just yeah. get in the TV yeah
0: yeah because it keeps everyone quiet
1: yeah and and the parents are stressed I, you know, I can not I think you can't always blame the parents either
0: no no Definitely not. There's too many that's things to do. a conscious it. decision. Yeah. Unplug and switch off.
1: Unplug and switch off and just move away from it.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I don't know, there's lots of research saying that the children are more aggressive. Children that spend a lot of time on screen time are more aggressive. Yeah. And then try and wean them off because it is addictive.
0: I mean, same with my kids too, you know. So like just get rid of it altogether. Go outside, go for a walk, go to the beach, and it's all forgotten about.
1: Yeah. But very often the parents don't take the time to go with them because that's the other thing is, you know, if they if they used to, if they're not used to uh, seeing what's available, or the potential yeah. of things up, and and everybody's on technology inside, and then the parents say go out and play, but the parents are the parents are still, still on, on the, the computer. T-
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but yeah, it's such a big thing. I think just this screens not just with kids but adults it's just taking over our society i think you know we're all just on screen and everything's through a screen like even now the kids want to play music it's yeah. all through you know they want to use my phone to play music it's like well what else are you going to do are you just going to play music or then are you going to start you know <laughs> so it's not like before it's like there's a cd put it in the player yeah so uh, anyway <laughs> Capes in the older days we had tapes yeah, yeah. or real to real. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you <laughs> recommend to parents like as a way to get kids that do want to be inside do want to be on screens to sort of draw them outside and get them doing some other things well
1: one way is maybe to look at um you know, if the, if the passion or the you know, if the passion is technology, it might be uh, providing them with a camera and, and going out to
0: photograph. Mm, that's a good idea.
1: Or a recorder so that they can record different sounds and, def- and maybe do their own broadcasting. Mm. Um, also, you, you know, you can get night vision cameras.
0: Mm, cool. They'd love that.
1: <laughs> they would love the night vision cameras. Um, even things like metal detectors, mm. where they can go. Out to, do a bit of metal detecting. They're still outside. It's not play as such, but they might find other things that will then draw them into that um, natural space. Mm. Thinking of, um, you know, we at one of my the kindergartens I worked at, we had cameras with tele- um, ca- uh, uh, food, uh, bird boxes with cameras inside them that, that you could link to the computer. Oh,
0: great.
1: So you could actually see the birds, the babies hatching, and, you, could, you know, the eggs and mm. the babies hatching. Hear the sounds and it was in colour, so it might be looking at some of those sort of opportunities rather than playing games on a computer. Mm.
0: And do you think it's changed? I mean, obviously, it has. Like, what do you think are the main changes since like we were kids? Say, so, you know, I think however many years ago that might be. <laughs> I, I think, um.
1: Uh, nowadays there's a a perception that we're living in a very risky world. Mm. You know, that there's a risk everywhere and the the reality is that the research shows that children have never been safer than they are today. Mm. And it's small things. I mean, I remember even just being transported in a car, we often sat in the back of what we in South Africa called a bucky, but you would call a ute here. No no seatbelts, just sitting in the back, hold on tight when you go over the bumps. Yeah, yeah. You know, that sort of childhood and also a childhood where we were left for long periods of time without active adult supervision. And it it wasn't that we weren't loved. Mm. You know, parents loved us, but they trusted us yep. and they trusted the community. And I think that's the other thing is that we've lost a lot of that sense of community because I remember getting up, getting up to mischief at the top of the street and my parents heard about that very quickly <laughs> because they knew. Those people knew who my parents were, so... They dob <laughs> you know, I
0: remember the same it's a
1: lot of sense of community, um, the loss of our trust in community, mm. and that our perception that it's a very dangerous world. When actually, you know, those dangers have always been there. They've, it's just been amplified often by social media yes. and by the news. Is, you know, you know, we'll hear about something, and it's you know, the, these things happened when we were children. Mm.
0: And there's also the physical risks as well that um, a lot of people were trying to avoid, uh, especially educational facilities. They might yes, Someone yes. might hurt themselves or fall out of a tree or do a... I mean, at one stage, cartwheels were banned at our primary school that the kids go to <laughs> because <laughs> someone had broken her arm doing a cartwheel. And, so, and I loved in your article you talked about risk, um, the article that you wrote for Pit magazine, You talked about it's actually there's a greater risk if you avoid risks. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Well, there's a. um, I think that's another big thing that's that's changed since we were children. Because, you know, as a child, you know, you 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 might get a broken arm, but it wasn't. You didn't immediately look to sue somebody. No. Uh, You know, it was. You made a mistake, and I refer to these as you know, you know, the, the bumps and scrapes that we got as children. Those are learning injuries. Mm. You know, and I, I remember, you know, you, you, I permanently had grazed knees and then you would sort of say so scab over and then you'd pick a yeah. scab, yeah. get a bubble of blood, and then, you know, it would come faster than you'd anticipated or, yeah. you know, it would be underneath. But those were, those, that's all part of childhood and that's part of growing up. Um, and what we're trying to avoid is... The, it's you know obviously the serious accidents. We don't want accidents that have got long-term permanent consequences, mm. uh, like a head injury or death or obviously. <laughs> you know, serious, no, nobody wants to see a childhood. You know, I'm I'm a great advocate for children, and the last thing I want to see is children hurt. But what's happening now is that because as parents and as adults, we're so fearful, and we tend to focus on physical risk. Mm. You can count how many band-aids we've dispensed. Early childhood environments um, have become paranoid about writing up every single little incident mm. whether it's a scrape or um, a. But but the message we give to, to families is that a bump is a serious injury. We've had to do all this paperwork. You know, we've had to stop our supervision of the children so that we can complete this paperwork. Mm. Um, and so when parents have children and their children have a scrape or a scratch. I think maybe the message they've got is that that's actually serious when it isn't. It's a, it's a childhood injury. It's a, you know, a, a learning injury. Mm. And what we're what we're creating is a, um, a generation of very anxious young people. And that anxiety, you know, the mental health problems that a lot of our children are displaying, um, and anxiety is a big one. I don't remember when I started teaching, um, which is now about 35 years ago. I never came across a young child with anxiety. Mm. It's, a, it's a, um, a relatively new epidemic, and I think it is be- because, you know, we're fearful of so many things. Um, and also children don't have the resilience, and you'll have a child fall and immediately, you know, um, you know there's lots of tears, there's lots of uh, parent, um, mm. you know, are you all right, and Band-Aids and first aid, where's... To be honest, when I take children into the forest or the bush and they fall and they graze or they get scratches or, you know, by a stick or something, there's no, there's no tears, there's no looking for blame. Mm. They can get up and go, you know, get on with it because um, I,
0: think,
1: yeah, I think because there's so many exciting things, also because they can't blame anybody.
0: Mm. And yeah. also I think if no one's running towards them saying, oh, you're okay, and looking worried, yeah. then they just get on with it.
1: Yes, and, and life's so exciting that they don't want to delay. And also, you know, sometimes the most exciting thing to happen in a school or early child environment is that injury And then you go to the school nurse and you get a, mm. you get a cold compress and you get a, um, a Band-Aid and everybody feels sorry for you. <laughs> and you have that piece of paper that your parents have to... It's a bit like when I hire a car and they give you that piece of paper to tell you how many scratches the car has got. Mm. I sometimes feel that that's what's happening in early childhood is that you know, we need to keep a track of every, you know, every dent and scrape that children have. Um, so to me, we need to look at the serious, you know, we don't want children to have serious injuries. Learning injuries are acceptable. And um, there's a, like, um, a group in England who created a um, a document called it's a company or a group called play england and they've yep. got some really good documentation but they differentiate it between bad hazards and good hazards mm. and i think that's a really good way of looking at it when we're doing a, a risk assessment to say is that a bad hazard or a good hazard so a, a good hazard would be something where the children can see it's dangerous yeah so for example climbing a tree a, a child knows the tree is high mm. Children have learned about height, even in a very protected environment. They've learned about things are high and they're not high. So uh, climbing a tree is a good hazard. And also there's, there are a lot of benefits to children for, you know, in climbing trees. Um, a bad hazard would be something where the children can't see that it's dangerous.
0: Mm. Like so, electricity um, or something.
1: Electricity or um, depending on, it depends on your child too and the age of the child. So a baby might not realize that, a mushroom is maybe not edible.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: would be a bad hazard for a crawling baby, but it's not a bad hazard for a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's been, you know, uh, taught that we don't eat, we don't eat and touch, you know, we don't eat fungi that we find in in nature. Mm. You know, so uh, so it's it's looking at good and bad hazards. So things like um, tree climbing is a good hazard. If a child is not experienced, you might have to support the child in developing a knowledge that they need to test the branch before they yep. just it.
0: Yep.
1: So a dead branch could be a bad hazard if you've got an inexperienced child.
0: Yeah. So it's, sort of, it's a lot of it's about the adults being there to teach them how to do things.
1: Yes. A lot of it's about the adults being really aware. But once, you've, once a child has learned that he needs to test his way mm. to the branch, or putting his weight on that branch, that child can climb any tree without adult supervision yes. because he's already learned that. Whereas if we don't teach children these things, they might go to a friend's house or visit grandparents um, and not have had the experience, and you know, and then have a much bigger accident than they would have had as a small child mm. testing the limits for the first time. And and also, you know, taking risks is about children testing um, their limits. Mm. And it's not just, as I mentioned earlier on, it's not just about physical risk. It's also about taking a, taking a chance at being, you know, picking up a book and trying to read it, mm. or, you know, trying a science experiment. That's what you know scientists do is is they're constantly experimenting, and not everything works. But if you if you haven't got a risk-taking disposition, so you're not looking for, you know, you're not comfortable with risk, you won't do that. And also with friendships. It's, um, you know, you take a risk going up to another child and say, will you be my friend? Because they might just reject you. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of our very anxious children do not have the confidence or the, that risk-taking disposition where they will go to another child and say, you know, let's play this together or may I, may I join you in climbing the tree? So mm. you can do that interaction for them.
0: So how can we avoid this anxiety that kids are getting these days?
1: I think it's by allowing them to, um, to ex- have that freedom to explore, mm. and by allowing them to take the
0: risks, because mm. that's- and work things out for themselves a bit.
1: Yeah, they need to, and they need to be able to know their limits because a child that's constantly being told by the adults that everything is dangerous doesn't know what their limits are, mm. far they can push themselves. And also, yeah, to have that. I mean, I believe I believe that entrepreneurs are risk takers. Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't want, we want children to take risks that are appropriate for their age and stage of development. So we need to allow the baby to take a risk. We need to allow the toddler to take a risk.
0: Mm. And allow- then they soon learn. It's like with babies learning how to go downstairs. Yeah. If you leave them to work it out, they can work it out. But yes. If you but run and grab them every time, then they have no idea how to deal with it.
1: Yeah, and, then, and, and um, the thing is that the, the, the real world... There are steps there's not security gates on every pair of every set of steps, so you no. might just, you know turn your attention away for a few seconds and a child who doesn't has never negotiated steps is going to come tumbling down because hasn't learned that steps are dangerous mm. you know, we, we didn't have all the um, security gates you know the little child gates yeah yes, there is a place for all of those, but maybe we're depending too much on those and not allowing children to have. Um, you know those learning experiences where they discover mm. their b- limits and their boundaries, and you know how brave can they get. And, and and sometimes it's good to have that. You know, you know that feeling you get in your stomach when you're trying to do something that's a little bit risky, and you think, yeah, you well, know, that sort of butterflies in your tummy. Yeah, and, it's a good feeling. Go, I did it! I did it! You yeah. know, it was, yeah. it's that sense of achievement, which again I think a lot of our children are are losing out on because they're not pushing their limits, so they're not getting to that. I did it.
0: Mm, yeah. So, and also I think sometimes parents need to turn their back if the yes, kids are doing something that they are uncomfortable with. Yep. But, you know, they're probably all right. You just have to go, okay, I'm not going to look. Yep. <laughs> it's and don't bit... say the
1: words be careful.
0: What's like that, I, sorry?
1: So I, I used to ban the words be careful. Yeah. yeah. Because we're constantly telling children to be careful, whether it is pouring their milk or... <sighs> Or running, or climbing a tree, we have the standard little yeah, phrase. I do. <laughs> I, I, well, I did too. As a parent. Careful. But, you know, careful. But be careful with that. <laughs> but no child is going to be reckless with something, you know. They. Mm. And then you're better off saying, um, you know, that knife is sharp. Yeah. So be, you know, be aware. Yeah. Be careful, yeah. Not just randomly be careful, because then it's, you know, do I have to be careful of? the snake on the ground or the flying saucer landing on my head kind of thing. It's sort of... <laughs> yeah. And also and I think it ma- makes children think that you, do- that you don't trust them and also that maybe there's a bigger risk than they perceive. Because yeah.
0: You
1: know, if, if they're quite comfortable climbing that tree and you standing underneath with your arms stretched out saying, be careful, be careful, yeah. then the child thinks, oh, my, my parent thinks it's dangerous. I wonder what the dangers are. Yeah. So then they... Not, you know, uh, doubting themselves, which I think we, we need to allow children to, um, to develop that intuitive, um, intuitive response to risk so that they themselves will say, look, I'm comfortable with that and I'm not comfortable with that, rather than the adult mm. making the decision.
0: Yeah. yeah. So what yeah. would you say is a takeaway message for parents or educators with kids that want to try and encourage this nature connection?
1: I would say to make the time. It's very easy to say we don't have time, we don't have time, but then, you know, we, we make time to to do other things. It's to say, look, it, it's actually, I would even say it's vital or critical that we do give children nature time. Mm. You know, they come out in an open, natural space where there's no pressures on the child to perform or to achieve, but that yeah. the children can explore their own boundaries, um, know explore what they want and also to develop that close connection to nature so that one day they will want to protect nature mm. but that obviously is another big risk if we have a generation of children who have no interest and no love of nature um, who's going to you know who's going to be doing your job in future who's going to be doing you know the, the environmental sustainability
0: yeah.
1: focus if people don't care about nature and about yeah. environment
0: yeah, it's about building that love of nature.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, uh, go back to nature time and allow children to, you know, to get to know nature in depth.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Nikki. Thanks for having a chat with us and sharing all your wisdom. No, thank um, you
1: for the chat. I can, I can keep talking all day, but I, <laughs> I, just, I just really want um, parents to see the value of, and, and um, you know, families to see the value of children being in the natural space
0: yep. yeah it's very valuable okay thanks a lot for your time Thank Bye you.
1: Very much, for now. And
0: lovely to chat to you, and- you you too thanks for listening to the PIP Permaculture Podcast to hear more great conversations like this subscribe to the PIP Permaculture Podcast via SoundCloud or the iTunes Store to read Nikki's Bush Schools article in the latest issue of PIP Subscribe to the magazine at www.pipmagazine.com.au.